If you have a Bible, again, Romans chapter 1, we're in verses 13 through 15, and we're looking at a sermon that I've entitled, The Great Commission is Not an Option. The Great Commission is Not an Option. Romans chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Here's what Paul writes to the church of Rome. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can sing about our story and our song, which is Jesus is our Savior all the day long. And I pray, God, that this morning our hearts would be full of truth and full of appreciation for the beauty of your love for us demonstrated in Christ. And as we think about taking that message of the gospel to the world, that we would be unashamed and that we would be ready to go and that we would be faithful as we're here. And I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. On September the 19th, 1883, Hudson Taylor sailed from Liverpool, England, and arrived in Shanghai, China, almost six months later on March the 1st, 1884. Why did a young man with a promising future in England travel to China as a missionary? Well, Hudson Taylor had a deep, convicting, driving, uh, you know, love for Christ that really came from the lips of Jesus. And that would be in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, when Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." That was the passage that drove Hudson Taylor to leave England and the Western world to go to the Far East, to China. And this challenge from Jesus was a call for all of his followers, both from the first century, the disciples, and to every century, even up to the 21st century, to make disciples in all the world by going, by baptizing, and by teaching the Bible. Before Hudson Taylor, this passage by Jesus had not yet been commonly known as the Great Commission. It was actually Hudson Taylor who popularized this well-known missionary term, the Great Commission. Before Taylor, that nomenclature didn't even exist, but it was him who decided, you know what, we got to call this passage the Great Commission because it's a great call for us all to go take the gospel to the nations. Hudson Taylor came to Christ when he was about 14 years of age. On holiday, while he was at his father's library, um, Taylor picked up a gospel tract, hoping for an interesting story before the inevitable moral at the end. As he read the phrase, quote, the finished work of Christ caught his attention. And he asked himself, what is finished? Well, raised in the church, as he had been, the answer quickly came to him, a full and perfect atonement and satisfaction for sin. This is Taylor writing in his diary. It was a full and perfect atonement and satisfaction for sin. The debt was paid by the substitute. Christ died for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of anyone who would repent 
and the whole world. Then, flooded in the joyous conviction that if the whole work was finished and the whole debt paid, that all that was left for him to do was to repent and to receive Christ by faith. And that he did. At age 14, in the library on that day, as he thought about the finished work of the cross, he fell on his knees and he praised God with heartfelt gratitude. And one of the things I love about how Hudson Taylor both understood and followed Jesus' mission's mandate is when Taylor said the Great Commission is not an option to be considered, it is a command to be obeyed. So again, it's him thinking through this and challenging us today. Again, it's not an option. So many times we sit around and think like, well, maybe I'll do missions or maybe I won't. I mean, I don't know if I'm called to the Great Commission, at least not on the greater ends of the earth. And yet Taylor is reminding us this morning of the command Jesus already gave, the Great Commission, it's not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. Hudson Taylor was passionate about obeying the Great Commission, and that meant all of the world needed to be evangelized. And in Hudson's mind, China was at the forefront of that unknown frontier. He eventually had to start his own mission-sending agency called the China Inland Mission in order to get missionaries deployed in unreached and in the remotest areas of China. And part of that passion is seen in Hudson Taylor's diary entry when he wrote this, quote, unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people receiving in their own security or rejoicing, excuse me, rejoicing in their own security while millions were perishing from lack of knowledge. I wandered out on the sands alone in great spiritual agony, and there the Lord conquered my unbelief, and I surrendered myself to God for this service. I like that about Hudson Taylor. He's basically saying, how convicting, right? I'm sick and tired of living in security, listening to a thousand Christians rejoice when there are unknown millions of people around the world who've never heard the gospel. And that brought him to fear and agony. And then when he prayed this out to the Lord, his frustration, then he was feeling God's peace. And at that moment, he surrendered to God's service. A little bit later in Taylor's ministry, when he was going through a rough time, and mind you, we all go through rough times, especially Hudson Taylor, if you've read about him and his missionary endeavors again there in inland China, he wrote this at a low point. He said, I told him the Lord, I told him that all the responsibility as to issues and consequences must rest with him, that as his servant, it was mine to obey and to follow him, his to direct, to care, and to guide me and those who might labor with me. Need I say that peace at once flowed into my burdened heart. So every time he got frustrated, it was difficult. He's like, I'm just going to trust the Lord. It's his job to ultimately do it. I'm just going to be faithful to obey him. And the reason I'm just reading that to you is I, I just love reading biographies by missionaries. And Hudson Taylor's been one of our favorite. We named our fourth child after this missionary, Hudson. And so um, when I think about it, in some ways, this willingness and earnestness for Hudson Taylor to go to China, I think pictures a similar interest and eagerness and an indebtedness that Paul felt to go to Rome. And that's what the book of Romans is all about, is Paul was desperate to get to Rome because all of the Roman Empire had not hurt. 
In much of the city of Rome, while there's this little church that somehow started from some of the pilgrims who had been likely at the Feast of Pentecost in Acts 2, there was, there was Paul finally uh, going to get to Rome. We saw that at the end of Acts in prison chains, but he's writing this letter, if you remember, from Corinth before he was ever able to get there, but he longed to come to them. And so we're, we're looking this morning at Romans 1, 13 through 15, and just remember, we've been in Romans 1 for uh, a little bit over a month now. We're, we're in what's called the opening prologue of the book, which would include the first 17 verses of this epistle of of Romans, the prologue we've been talking about is like the front porch of the book, and it gives us a holistic view, an introduction, and even an entrance into the great doctrines of this epistle. And this prologue is all about the whole, what, what the whole book is all about, which is it's about the gospel. It's about the good news of salvation that is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In the first seven verses of Romans, we've been hammering out all the specifics of the gospel, that the gospel is from God, that the gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets, that the gospel was announced in the Old Testament scriptures, that the gospel is all about God's son, and that the gospel is all about Jesus Christ to his the son of David according to the flesh, that the gospel is all about the fact that Jesus lived a, a perfect life and he died on the cross and he was raised victoriously on the third day. This gospel extended grace to Paul and called him to be an apostle. This gospel leads all converts to the obedience of faith. This gospel message is for the sake of his name among all the nations. And this gospel includes a, a, a y'all in there. Remember, he said, I'm writing to you all, or y'all, as they say in the South. And so this gospel was to all the elect in Rome who were loved by God and called to be saints. This gospel is about grace and peace, which is extended to every born-again believer. Remember, I've been saying that these first seven verses are like a systematic theology dipped in kerosene and lit on fire so that we can watch it burn. And then verses 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, is like an atomic bomb exploding. And we just stand back and watch the mushroom cloud fill the sky. And while we're taken back between these two towering texts, we've been walking across the bridge of verses 8 through 15 between these two monstrous texts. And we're just waiting to catch that explosion, which we're going to catch next time in 16 and 17. But while we're walking across this bridge, last time, verses 8 through 12, we looked at how Paul, a servant of the gospel, offered his service as an act of worship to God. We saw that Paul gave thanks for the church in verse 12, and we saw how Paul prayed for the church in Rome there in verse 13. And then in verse 14, we saw how Paul wanted to impart some sort of spiritual gift to the church in Rome that would lead to mutual encouragement. Paul would encourage the believers there, and they in return would encourage him as well. We ended last time talking about we all need to be imparting spiritual encouragement to each other. And so that leads us back up to where we are today. We're talking again about the topic that the Great Commission is not an option. And so let me give you three headings, if I can, this morning from verses 13 through 15 that will stir us up to not only know the Great Commission, but to fulfill the Great Commission with our own lives. And so in our text this morning, we're going to see, number one, Paul wanted to come 
to Rome, verse 13. Number two, Paul was obligated to come to Rome. And then in verse 15, Paul was eager to preach the gospel in Rome. And you'll see all of those there in verses 13, 14, and 15. So let's start with number one. Paul wanted to come to Rome. And your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, says there was an important explanation to give. Now, we talked about this a little bit last time, but I'll just kind of pick up and we'll get a running start with that information again. Because what Paul says here at the beginning of verse 13 is, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. So Paul uses some pretty strong language here at the very beginning of verse 13 when he says, I do not want you to be unaware. He wants to explain his delay of why it's taken him so long to get to the capital of the Roman Empire. And he uses that expression, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. He uses that expression a total of six times in the New Testament. So this one and five other times in the New Testament. And I've listed the cross references for you there in your outline. Line. And, it, and this expression really is a rule that, that, that when he's using it, he's purposely trying to introduce his readers to something that they wouldn't have been expected to already know, but in regards to something of vital importance. So I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. We see it used in Romans eleven twenty five when Paul was discussing the importance of being aware that there would be a surprising development of a partial hardening of Israel until many elect Gentiles are saved. And he, he used that in, again, Romans eleven twenty five. lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Again, about the partial hardening of the Israelites until the Gentiles were saved. He, he used that expression again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. And in that section, he's talking about revealing that the Israelites who escaped from Egypt, who were baptized into Moses, who ate of the same spiritual food and drank of the same spiritual drink, that what they were drinking from was the spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. And so we use that same introductory phrase in 1 Corinthians 10, 1, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. And he's saying the Israelites all along, they were following Christ. He was being revealed throughout the Mosaic covenant in pictures and in shadows, but they were really following Christ. And then he uses that same introductory phraseology in 1 Corinthians 12, 1, when he's discussing the importance of spiritual gifts. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, 1, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. So again, he's always highlighting something of great importance, and he does that over and over again. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he's talking about how his readers, he wanted to inform them of the persecution that he had previously faced when he writes, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. And then last but not least, Paul used this expression when introducing the important information about the rapture. Somebody ever ask you, well, where's the rapture in the Bible? I always take them to this text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, because Paul introduces that eschatological information by saying in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. And so he's something they didn't fully know, that he wants to make sure they understand that those who are asleep... That, that, that those who are, about, uh, who are asleep, that we grieve for them, but not as those who have no hope. 
because Christ is coming back to bring hope to those who are asleep, those who have died in Christ, they'll be raised up to be with him. So again, Paul's just going to great length to make sure that the Roman believers understood why he had not come to them sooner. And the full explanation could be really further elaborated on in the middle of verse 13. So he uses that that powerful introduction, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So that leads us to our second blank there. In the middle of verse 13, we, we read that there was the need to wait on God's timing. Ultimately, under the sovereignty of God, there was something about him waiting on God's timing. Paul said that he had often intended to come to them. Here in the middle of verse 13, uh, there's no clear indication in this particular verse of what was hindering him from visiting them, but we do see him pick up the same theme at the end of the epistle. So turn there with me, if you will, to the end of Romans, Romans chapter 15, and you see him elaborate on this just a little bit more at the end of this letter. And so in Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 17, Paul writes this, in Christ Jesus then... I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Ilicrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So part of the reasoning is, I wanted first to go plant churches where there was no church. And since there was already a church in Rome, I wanted to go to some of these other little bit more rural areas. He would start in the city and then work his way around these different areas there in ancient um, uh, near, uh, in the ancient Near East, in present-day Turkey. Uh, these were the areas that Paul was going to. And then if you skip down, look at verse 22, Romans 15, 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered for coming to you. He doesn't mention the reason in chapter 1, but in chapter 15, this is the reason why I have been so often hindered in coming to you, because I've been doing mission work in these other areas in the preceding verses, verse 23, but now, since I am no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and I hope to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Uh, this is a, uh, it's important for you to just kind of see this. Paul had been wanting to get to them. He's finally going to get to them, but they're just a means to an end. His ultimate goal wasn't to come to Rome because I just want to hang out and spend the rest of my ministry in Rome. His ultimate goal to get to Rome was to reach the rest of the outer ends of the earth and to get to Spain and that Rome would help him be able to, to, to build up his ministry a little bit more, maybe take some people with him and to be able to reach more. So now that there's nothing else for him to do, he'd like to come to Rome and then he'd like to go from Rome to Spain and to the ends of the earth. And so this is a little bit of the reasoning that we're understanding from Romans 15 of why, while Paul was, he was busy fulfilling his duty to these other places, but once that duty had been completed, he's now able and ready to come to Rome. Now, remember, again, he's writing the letter from Corinth. He's going to be arrested and go to Jerusalem first. He gets to Rome a couple of years later as a prisoner, but he does get there, and uh, that's all needs to still happen before he actually arrives in Rome in person. 
All right, there is another suggestion of why Paul didn't come sooner, and that would be the organization of the collection of saints for Jerusalem that I was just talking about. It's also listed there in chapter 15, if you look down in verse 26. So he had that obligation to bring an offering to the needs of the saints there in Jerusalem before he went to Rome. And then there's also an acknowledgement that's given in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, that was there, there was some type of satanic opposition so in, in somewhere along the way, probably we could say all along the way, Satan's always opposing the spreading of the gospel. And so while it was partly due to the fact that Paul had other uh, goals to accomplish first, there was also the constant uh, attack and opposition of Satan. I mean, one, one thing we know for sure, God is sovereign over all people, over all events, and over the timing of every event. And while God's sovereign over all people, all situations, and the timing of every event, Satan's also always at work too. He's always at work trying to combat what it is that God's doing. But we know ultimately God has the upper hand. Not only does he have the upper hand, he has total dominance as an all-wise, all-knowing, total sovereign God. And so really, Paul got to Rome exactly when and how Paul wanted him to come, and that was done all in accordance with the divine providence and wisdom of God. And that ought to just bring us some encouragement this morning. We can certainly rest in the fact that God is sovereign over all the events and all the timing of all the events of everything in our lives. And that means that God's sovereign over the timing of my graduation. God's sovereign over the timing of you getting your first job. God's sovereign over the timing of getting married if he gives you a spouse. This means that God's sovereign over the timing of having kids if God gives you children. He's sovereign over the timing of your next mission trip. I personally think it should be this summer to Brazil, Italy, or Utah. All right, God's sovereign over everything, right? He's sovereign over each and every ministry opportunity in your life. God's sovereign over all things and the timing of all things in our lives. And that just ought to bring us some real encouragement. You know, Paul didn't always show up right where he wanted to be, right on time when he wanted to get, he just got there when God got him there. But when he got there, he was full. He was full of the gospel, he was ready to preach, he was ready to share, and he never, ever, ever complained about it. He just wanted to explain to Rome, again, why it was taking him a while to get there. It's just a reminder, God never runs ahead of us, and God never lags behind us. He's always leading us. His timing's always perfect, and all of his plans are perfect, and all the timing and fulfillment of those plans are perfect. Do you trust him with every single thing in your life. I think we spend too much of our life either wanting to get there or impatient we're not there yet. That's how we spend our time. I'm either complaining, I'm not there yet. It's where I want to be and I'm not there. And then we get impatient about, man, it's taken forever to get there. Trust in the Lord. Walk in his grace. Be useful where you are while you're there. Let's move on to the end of the verse, your next blank. There was a harvest that was in order, a harvest that was in order when he anticipates arriving to Rome. He does say, hey, I can't wait to get there in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So there's a harvest in order. Paul, Paul wanted to come to Rome to reap a harvest among them. And this would be among the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome who would repent and believe the gospel. The word for harvest here could be translated as it is in the NASB version as the word fruit. 
So to reap a, f- a harvest, to reap fruit, to bear fruit, if you will. The word there for harvest or fruit is a word that means a product or an outcome. It can mean produce or crops. And so Paul's ministry was an unending quest for spiritual fruit. His preaching, teaching, and writing were not ends in themselves, but the purpose of all of true ministry is for God to bear fruit in his name and for his glory. Jesus said to the disciples in John 15, 16, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, right? You didn't choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And so I just think it's interesting to see this emphasis here on fruit or Paul wanting to reap a harvest in in regard to spiritual life. Uh, You could say that the Bible uses the word fruit in at least five different ways. You know, reading commentaries on this, some say there's three ways, there's five ways. This is just, there's, here's five possible categories, and I think we can demonstrate it with these verses that are given. But the first one is this, different types of fruit the Bible talks about. Number one, the fruit of the Spirit. That ought to be number one, right? We all know that one like, bam, fruit of the Spirit. I got that one down. Galatians 5, through 33, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so this would be the most common way we think about spiritual fruit. These nine spirit-filled attitudes ought to dominate every fully surrendered believer. And in addition to this list given by Paul in Galatians, Peter uses his own development of the seven accompaniments, accompaniments to faith in order that we might be fruitful. If you remember from 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness uh, with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. So we don't want to be unfruitful. We want to be bearing fruit. And so Paul talks about it. Peter talks about it, and we understand that when we're filled with the Spirit, we're able to have these right attitudes and these right Christ-like qualities, and together, these character traits, they bear fruit in our lives. Second type of fruit mentioned in the Bible, number two, the fruit of our labor, the fruit of our labor. Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, and then verse, 30, uh, verse uh, 22 says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And so Paul's talking about the work. If he is going to continue to live, he wants to continue to be faithful as he teaches and preaches the gospel. He's going to be at work. And that's a fruitful labor. So he's ready to go home and be with the Lord, but he's willing to continue in his labor for the sake of his name. Third type of fruit we see in the Bible, number three, would be the fruit of our lips. The fruit of our lips, Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. It's nothing silent about Christianity. We're talking about the gospel. We're singing the gospel. We're encouraging one another. We need to be letting the fruit of his lips We bear the fruit of our lips by giving praise to God. And this includes thankfully acknowledging his great name in our work and in our worship. We we see here that our lips bear fruit. 
when we offer thankful acknowledgement of the name of God, and, and this is something that we should be doing continually. Fourth kind of fruit would be the fruit of giving. The fruit of giving, Romans 15, 28, there in that greater text we were looking at a minute ago, when therefore I have completed this, that's taking the offering to Jerusalem, and delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Now again, in that verse, in the ESV, there's a little footnote, and it says, what has been collected could also be translated as sealed to them this fruit. So what had been collected, their gift, was considered a sealing of their gift to them. And when it says that, it's exactly translated that way in the NASB, Romans 15, 28, put my seal on this fruit of theirs, the gifts, the giving that they had given. And so in these, this verse, Romans 15, 28, we see Paul designated, again, the collection of money for the poor saints in Jerusalem as a type of fruit. We see something similar in Philippians 4, 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Another example of that gift or giving being equated with spiritual fruit. Fifth type of fruit we see in the Bible would be this, number five, the fruit of conversion. The fruit of conversion, and we see that word used this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 5. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. That word first convert could also be translated, it's literally the word for first fruits. One of the first fruits, the very first one. It's also given in Romans 16, verse 5. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apennaeus, who was the first convert to the church in Asia. First convert, again, the word for first fruit. And so this, this last fruit that we're looking at, we looked at five fruits real quickly there, but this last fruit, the fruit of conversion, is also, I think, to be thought of as the fruit of addition that Christ is adding to his church. I believe it includes the idea of new converts and maturing converts both together there, new converts and maturing converts in Rome. That's the way I think we should understand the word fruit or the harvest that he wants to reap at the end of verse 13 would be he wants to add to the church to see people come to Christ and he wants to see them obviously also mature in their faith. And so the apostle wanted to be used by God to help the Roman church grow through new converts and to grow in new conduct. That's what happens, right? When you become a brand new believer, everything changes. Your attitude changes, your interests change. It's a new you, right? Old, old things have passed away. All things have become new. And so there's this newness, which would include growth in service to Christ. And I'm just saying, as we're studying a little bit about fruit here at the end of 13, nothing could be more encouraging to me at this church than to see new people come to saving faith. Nothing is more encouraging than to hear a testimony of like, let me share with you, pastor, how I was witnessing to my neighbor, to my child, to a friend, to someone on campus, and they came to Christ right there on the spot. I'm like, that's amazing. I'll never get tired of hearing about how God adds to his church. And at the same time, I'm also greatly encouraged with the fruitful lives of believers who are bearing these other types of fruit as they're growing in their love for Christ and their desire to exemplify all the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of our lips and the fruit of giving and all these different fruits that we see mentioned in the Bible. May God help us to be a faithful and a fruitful church. 
And that's what Paul wanted in Rome. He's like, I can't wait to come help reap a harvest. We're gonna reap some fruit when I get there because I'm gonna come to you and bring truth and bring encouragement and it's gonna be awesome. And so Paul wanted to come to Rome to reap a harvest, but we also see, let's move on to our second major heading this morning. Number two, Paul was obligated to come to Rome. This wasn't just a want to. This was, I, I got to do it. In fact, your next blank says he's under a great obligation. He is under a great obligation. And he says that in verse 14, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. And so let's look at this obligation. Paul, Paul forges straight ahead to acknowledge I'm under obligation to the Greeks and the barbarians. Uh, this could be translated, I am bound, I'm under obligation, or I am bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks. I am under obligation, or I am bound could be more literally translated as I am a debtor. That's what it really the word means. I, I, I'm bound to come, I'm obligated to come. He's saying, I'm in debt. Paul is making it clear that he did not preach or teach the gospel because of personal reasons or because the calling that God had given him seemed so attractive. People don't usually go into the ministry because it's an easy job or you can get rich really quick type of opportunity. That's not the real reason why most people would go into the ministry. Paul did what he did because he was under obligation. As it says in 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul says there that it was out of necessity. Remember in 1 Corinthians 9.16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. That doesn't just sound like some, some like, oh, that sounds like that would be a fun job. He's like, I got to do this or I'll die. This is what I've got to do. And I felt something similar to that when God called me in the ministry. People ask me all the time, well, why did you go from being a PA to being a pastor? I'm like, I had to. And they're like, oh, that's so sad. You got all that training as a PA and you had to leave it. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like the best thing I could ever do was to resign from my job to work for a better boss. <laughs> I mean, I had a pretty good boss, but you know what I mean. It's like... <laughs> It's like the idea of going, it wasn't like somebody was twisting my arm. I mean, there is that element of obligation, but the obligation is also, I want to do this with all my heart. And, I, and I'm not saying if you don't have that calling, you're a lesser Christian. I'm just saying for people who do go to the ministry, you know, I was talking to Dorcas yesterday. I told you we were praying. I mean, there's just something about someone who just says, you know, I don't know what the future has for me. I'm not even married. She didn't say that yesterday. I'm, I'm saying it. Sorry, Dorcas. But she's like, she's like, I'm going to the Philippines. People need to hear the gospel. I'm not sitting around waiting for my life to get perfect and everything to get lined up. I'm just going. And I just love that about people who are called by God. And we're all called. I get that. There's some application for those of us who are here in Santa Clarita and you didn't leave your career and you're, and you're a regular Christian. That's fine. But there ought to be still some obligation that I am here every day to live out this commission. I'm stealing my thunder from the end of the sermon. I'm, I'm here every day to live it out right here, right now, right? And, and so Paul, again, he's just saying, there's an obligation to this. This isn't just about a want to, it, I, I gotta do it. And so again, when, when the Lord called Paul to salvation and to apostleship, Paul at that time, he wasn't a churchgoer. 
He wasn't even a fan of the Christian faith, and he certainly wasn't a poster boy of what you would think that a world-renowned missionary would look like. When Paul was called, he wasn't promoting the gospel, but he was rather hell-bent on destroying the gospel at all costs. And so he seems to be saying, in effect, here in Romans 1.14, don't thank me for wanting to minister to you, although I love you and sincerely want to visit you, I was sovereignly appointed to this ministry long before I had a personal desire for it. I mean, every, every pastor and Christian worker, that would include you, every pastor and Christian worker or volunteer knows that there are times when ministry that we're all involved in is satisfying and fulfilling. And there's also times when ministry is really difficult, and it can be really hard. And there are times when ministry is, in fact, its own reward. The study, the preparation, the teaching, the shepherding, the serving that you're involved in are spiritually exciting and encouraging in themselves. But there are other times when the work and the service doesn't seem very attractive, and yet you still do what God's called you to do because you're under obligation to God and to those whom you are serving. Christ is our Lord, and we are his servants, and it is a poor servant who only serves when they feel like it. Or they only serve when it seems to be easy or popular or the cool group is serving in this way. So I'll go join that group and and serve in that way. No, ministry is about serving the undeserving and to roll up your sleeves and to go wherever God sends you. If you're all alone, that you would go to wherever it would be that God would call you. And, And somewhere in here, again, you might be asking yourself, you should be asking yourself, well, wait a second, Adam. If God saved Paul by grace alone, why is he now using this language about debt? Why is he saying I'm indebted to God? I mean, if we are freely recipients of salvation from God by faith, how and in what way are we indebted to him? And I would say that one way to understand that would be that we're indebted to God in the same way that if you saved someone else's life, they may feel indebted to you for that act of service. I mean, how many movies have you seen where somebody saves someone else's life and all of a sudden that person says, I'm gonna stay with you till I save your life. I'm I'm indebted to you by my culture to be enslaved to you until I return the favor to you. And I think that's part of what's going on here where Paul's saying, hey, I've been saved by, I was on my way to hell and God saved me. So the rest of my life, I, I wanna be serving God in that way. I think this is part of, this isn't a, a, a have to in order to, 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 to somehow pay back God for what God had given to him. This is more of a want to, uh, to show gratitude for being saved. I think that's a little bit of the picture here. Or another way to think of it would be when you hear good news about how to escape from a common danger or a common misery, whether it be to escape a fire or a flood or a famine or some other catastrophe, you become a debtor to tell that good news of how to escape that situation. You become a debtor to tell that good news to others so they can escape that misery too. You owe it to them. Why? Because if you withhold the good news of grace from others as if somehow you yourself qualified for it and they didn't, or you show that, that you have never really 
understood grace, if that's how you're thinking of it, like, well, I kind of deserve this, they don't, so that's on them, but this was given to me. What I'm saying is the grace of God, which calls us, even there in in Romans 1, 6, out of darkness and bestows upon us eternal love that we saw in verse 7, then it ought to create in us a desire to share that grace with others. We we don't qualify for grace beforehand. I'm just trying to say grace freely received ought to be grace that's freely given. So if you hold back this grace from others as if somehow you qualified for it and they didn't, then you default on your debt to the world. In that moment, you are proving that you have not really known or even understood grace. Grace is precious beyond words. It is our only hope as sinners, and we don't deserve it from God, and no one can deserve it from us. When grace comes to us freely, then we should be debtors to give freely. That's part of what's going on, I think, in this verse when Paul says, I'm indebted. I have received so much, how can I not give back? The, the one reason why Paul stresses this debt in verse 14, uh, he, he says both to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. That's who he wants to reach. Culture and intelligence and education do not qualify you for the gospel of grace and being unrefined and uneducated and illiterate do not disqualify you from the gospel of grace. There are no There are no qualifications for grace. It's offered freely for all who would come. And that's what Paul's partly saying. Look, I'm just indebted to come share this gospel. And and, and so in a sense, we want to swear our allegiance to God to share this grace that we've received in our salvation to share that with others. So just to understand it a little bit more, let let me move on. Your next blank says he's under obligation to the Greek and to the barbarian. That's what's being said here in verse 14. I'm under obligation, so we get that sense. And now he's saying to Greek and to barbarian, both to the wise and to the foolish. These two lines are really parallel. So let's go ahead and click that next click and we'll just go ahead and fill out B and C here because these two are really parallel. He's under obligation to Greek and to barbarian and then also to the wise and to the foolish. These are parallel phrases at the end of verse 14. In this verse, verse 14, most likely Greeks is representing the word wise. So those two would go together in parallel. And then you see the word barbarian. In the middle of verse 14, we go with the word at the end of verse 14 with the foolish. So you have the Greek and the wise, you have the barbarian or the foolish. The Greeks of that day included people from anywhere if they were educated in Greek learning and even trained in Greek culture. They were unto themselves highly sophisticated and were even often looking upon themselves as some higher level or as the upper crust. You know what the upper crust is? When I was a PA living in Savannah, I actually did live for a year in an elite golfing neighborhood with another Christian businessman who was a single guy and he had a room I could rent from the church I was going to. And it was like a nice neighborhood, like really rich people, which I like, I like rich people, don't you? You like rich people? So, you know, it's like the code to get in and then another code to get into that other part of the neighborhood. And they had this restaurant, the reason I'm mentioning this, and it was called the Upper Crust. 
And I remember, like, there at the golf shop or whatever, it's like the one place if you were hungry at night because you had to go out of the gate and go back into town to, to get, we're like, let's go to the upper crust. You know, we get in there and we pull out our menus and we're like, yeah, look at us. We're living high on the land here. At the upper crust, we can order whatever we want. Well, that's kind of how the Greeks were. They were that upper echelon, sophisticated, upper crust kind of people. They, they were the best of the best. They were the creme de la creme. Right? The, the, the Greek language was thought to be the language of the gods. Greek philosophy was thought to be only a little less than divine. And on the other hand, you've got the barbarians. It's frequently referred to as those who were not Hellenized. That is, they were not steeped into Greek learning and culture. The word barbarian is actually one of those fun words. It's the onomatopoeic word, and that means that it sounds like what it says. It's derived from the repetition of the syllable bar, B-A-R, to a cultured Greek with their nose up in the air, eating at the upper crust. When the barbarians would be in their presence or they would hear them, their languages sounded like gibberish, and they would mimic them. The Greeks would mimic the barbarians by saying bar, bar, bar. It sounded like they're saying something, they're mumbling something along, but it's not some eloquent language, and they would be condescending. They're, they're the barbarians who just speak in that language that's just a bunch of syllables. These barbarians were looked down upon as being uncultured and uncouth and uneducated. My mama warned me when I was a kid, don't hang around uncouth people. I'm like, mama, what does that mean? She's like, it means they're not well-mannered. I don't want you hanging out with those boys. Because right? we don't want to be uncouth. That's what they saw the barbarians as, as uncultured, uncouth, uneducated. So you got the Greeks in their mind, in Greek culture, you got the Greeks and you got the non-Greeks. Right? Just like for the Jews, you got the Jews and the Gentiles. From the Jewish perspective, it's Jew and Gentile. From the Greek perspective, it's like, you're Greek, you're with us, or you're a barbarian. Kind of reminds me of that movie, The Big Fat Greek Wedding, where the, the dad in the movie is kind of like, we're Greek, that word is Greek, everything's Greek. You're like, no, it's not, but he thought it was, right? He's everything's about, he's so proud of being Greek. And so here in verse 14 again, Paul is stressing his indebtedness to share the gospel of grace with the Greek and the barbarian, with the wise and with the foolish. And this would have been to the educated and to the uneducated, to the sophisticated, to the simple, to the privileged, to the underprivileged. I mean, these barbarians grew up on the wrong side of the railroad tracks. They were from the poor side of town. They were social outcasts. And yet Paul makes it clear, I'm indebted to both groups. I'm not just here in Rome to only talk to the high life. Because there was a lot of slaves and a lot of quote-unquote scum in Rome that needed the gospel as well. And you understand, I, I'm not saying we should be, you know, um, in any way condescending towards the people that, that were lesser privileged. That's the, precisely Paul's point. The gospel goes everywhere. There is no respecter of persons. There is no, oh, this or this. It's like, no, the gospel goes to everyone. That's what Jesus came to do and model for us great love and great care as Jesus even came in John 4 to the woman at the well in Samaria who was an outcast who had to go to the well at noon so she wouldn't be ridiculed because of her history of having five different husbands and the guy she lived with was not her husband and Jesus was kind to her and gracious with her, and revealed himself to her in such a way that she was radically changed and even brought the rest of the town to come hear about the saving faith that was offered by this Messiah. 
God forbid that we would ever look down our noses at the less fortunate. God forbid that we would somehow feel obligated to share the gospel with certain classes of people, but not with other classes. God forbid that we would somehow keep the grace that he's freely bestowed upon us to ourselves. May we spend and be spent for the sake of his name. And may we take the gospel to all the people of Santa Clarita and to all the groups that exist in America, to all the peoples of the world. The Great Commission, remember, it's not an option, it's a command that we take the gospel everywhere. And so we're seeing here that Paul, he wanted to come to Rome. He, he longed to be with the brothers and sisters there, but he's also obligated in some sense to come to Rome to share the gospel with, with everybody there. And then in number three, in our outline, Paul was eager to preach the gospel in Rome. He's eager to preach the gospel in verse 15. Again, we just read where he says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So your first blank there says, why we preach the gospel to unbelievers. Why we preach the gospel to unbelievers. Again, I think it's important to understand that Paul's sense of obligation was to preach the gospel, and I really think he didn't consider that to be a burden so much as it was a privilege. And in fact, this verse says that he's eager to preach the gospel, just as he was saying in verse 14, not only to all sorts of people, but specifically to the people in Rome. To, to be eager means to be ready and willing. It means to be prepared and to be prompt. It means to be looking forward to. He, he, he was so looking forward to being able to do that. And so let's look at three reasons why we preach the gospel to unbelievers. Okay, I'm going to give you three reasons why we preach the gospel to unbelievers. Number one, because we're commanded to. We are commanded to. There are many unbelievers in Rome. There were at least a half a million people, if not more, in Rome itself. There was likely a few hundred believers there at this time. So needless to say, Paul's work was cut out for him in the city of Rome. And we're commanded to preach the gospel, as Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. The word preach there, 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, in season, out of season. The word preach is in the imperative, which means it is a command, which means it's not a suggestion, it's not an option. And Paul wasn't brainstorming here with Timothy about effective ways to reach the culture. Paul was commanding Timothy to preach the word. Again, the word preach is the word caruso. It means to make known, to make a public declaration. It means to proclaim aloud so all can hear. This isn't, this isn't whispering to the person next to you. This is going public with the gospel. That's what preaching is. And preaching is meant by definition to stir up the pot just a little bit. That's why it has a negative connotation in today's vernacular. Don't be preaching at me. Well, why don't you want someone preaching? Because you know they're about to stir it up. They're about to get in it. Whatever you're in, they're getting in there with you and they're talking about it and they're poking you and they're prodding you. Now, you can preach other topics that I don't want to hear preached to me either, but I want to hear the gospel and that's the only thing that we're called to do. We're not called to preach politics. We're not called to preach about our favorite sports team. We're not called to preach about something else. We're called to preach the gospel. And sometimes unbelievers need to be jarred. 
Now again, I'm, I'm okay with friendship evangelism and I like you and I like you and can I share with you the most important thing in my life? That's fine. But sometimes you just gotta preach. And if you're a preacher out there, you know what I'm talking about, all right? Some point, and I've seen you mamas preach to your kids, so I know it's in you, all right? But at some point, you just gotta preach the gospel. You gotta rattle their cage. You need them to think about eternity and they need to be told where they're going if they don't repent and they need to be told where they could go if they would just look to Christ and be saved, that there's good news of the gospel that needs to be preached to them. A second reason why we need to preach the gospel to unbelievers is this. Number two, God works through his word. Yes, he does. When we preach the word, it will not return to us void. Different context, different situation, but I'm saying the principle applies. Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I purpose and it will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I mean, there may be times when Using God's word, you feel like using that scripture verse with an unbeliever might be falling on deaf ears. You may be tempted to think that maybe no one's really listening to you and they're tuning you out. You may think that and, and, and begin to doubt that God's word is even connecting with the lost and dying in our culture. You, you may be tempted to preach the social gospel instead because people are interested in hearing about that. And you may be tempted to, to preach a gospel of morality you have the moral majority movement of the 90s that was popular for this, and, and that's what you want to preach. You, you might today still want to just preach political activism. You know, we got to get out there and get our Republican candidate reelected. That's what we got to do. You know anybody like that? Whew. I know some folks like that, right? And, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably voting for the best candidate, all right? But I'm just saying, that's not what it's about. That's not on our, our great commission list here about who's elected as the next president, right? We're to preach the gospel, and that means bringing God's word to bear on unbelievers. For the word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, Listen, I've been out there on the campus and you're walking around trying to share the gospel and you think, oh my word, they're not gonna listen to me. And then I'm like, nah, I'm just gonna share this verse anyway. And even if they say, well, I don't believe the Bible. I'm like, well, I don't care. I'm sharing it with you anyway. This is what the word says. Don't let somebody take the sword of the spirit out of your hand. You continue to lovingly and at times not so lovingly. <laughs> when I say not so loving, I'm just saying sometimes you just gotta be a little aggressive, right? So it's not all sweet. And, and it, it, sometimes it's, it's, it's like, hey, let me, let me stand up like a man and proclaim what God's word says. Again, I think there's tough love and there's times to be soft, but I'm, I'm, I'm going tough right now. That's what I'm saying, all right? So if Paul was going to eagerly preach the gospel in Rome, think that was an easy context? Think that was like real simple, real easy? Hey, Paul, come on in. The church was, but not the rest of Rome. So if he's going to preach the gospel in Rome, then we got to equally be eager to preach the gospel to our culture today. And we ought to take heart that God's word is at work and God's word cuts like a knife and his word is sharper than a razor and his word pierces the soul, pulverizes stony hearts and penetrates to the very core of our being. 
Don't soft pedal, don't make excuses for, and don't do anything that would negate the preaching of the gospel to unbelievers. Third reason why we preach the gospel is this, number three, faith comes from hearing. It comes from hearing the what? The word of Christ, right? Rome didn't need to hear another politician or another philosopher or another story about Greek mythology. Human governors can't help you. Human philosophers can't free you. And Greek mythology can't save you. What Rome needed to hear was the gospel preached. And that's why Paul says in Romans 10, 14 through 17, how will they call upon the one of whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in the one in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. In order to believe, you have to hear the word preached or explained. Now, you could just read it as well, but typically, you're going to hear it preached or explained. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You're not saved by nature. You're not saved by general revelation. You're not saved by the mountains or the oceans and everything else in creation. You're saved through the word of Christ. And that is what Paul wanted to do when he got to Rome. And this is what you and I ought to be doing every day, all day for the rest of our lives is living the gospel, preaching the gospel, explaining the gospel to others so they can hear and so that God may grant them faith to believe. And not only was Paul preaching the gospel in Rome to unbelievers, but... You could argue in this text that Paul was actually preaching the gospel to believers. Some might ask, well, why would Paul want to come preach the gospel to the church in Rome if they're already believers? Well, that's your next point, your next reason why we preach the gospel to believers. So we preach the gospel to unbelievers, number one, and then number two, or B here, we preach the gospel to believers. So let me give you three reasons why we preach the gospel to believers. Number one, it is the theme of the Bible. Mature Christians love the scriptures. You can sometimes spot a veteran believer at church by their worn out Bible. You can say, oh, that guy's been in the word a lot. His Bible looks old and worn and uh, haggard, you know, and pages ripped out, highlights everywhere. When you see somebody come in with a new Bible, be, be wary. No, I'm just kidding. All right, sometimes you need a new Bible, right? But the idea is like, man, I, I, we read and our Bibles because we know the life-giving substance of the scripture is what we need. And these lifelong scripture students still need putting their Bibles together and connecting the dots. Mature Christians as well. We might know a lot of the Bible. We might know a lot of stories, but we don't often know how they all go together to form a single narrative of the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so gospel-centered preaching to Christians threads together the Bible's precious texts into a sparkling necklace. And Jesus is the crown jewel in the center. It creates a biblical theological aha moment 
that as you read the Bible, that you're thrilled as you hear the gospel being preached and you grow even in your knowledge of those simple truths. Seeing Jesus in all the scripture is like going through your attic or garage and finding letters of old photos from your family's history from over the years. They help you know a little bit more about your heritage by learning more of your family's story. Well, the same thing happens when you open up the Bible and you see believers following all along throughout redemptive history, that connects your spiritual heritage of faith. And it's all pointing to Christ. It's all pointing to the gospel. It's the theme of the Bible. And so we preach the gospel to Christians for that reason, but also number two, it inspires spiritual growth. It inspires spiritual growth. Every mature believer, they want to experience more of God, and yet sometimes we experience a little bit of drifting. We're just gonna be honest. In seasons through your life, you've been more on fire, less on fire. That happens in our lives. And so we need the gospel preached to us because it inspires spiritual growth. The flesh, the world, and the devil distract us from the great aim of knowing Christ. And so gospel-centered preaching empowers the kind of Christ-pursuing mindset and sanctification that Paul describes by holding Christ up and exalting him above all else. And we need someone to stand before us week after week to help us fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. The Bible is not ultimately an instruction book for life or a moral encyclopedia of do's and don'ts, it's a great drama of an, of an epic saga in which Jesus Christ is the heroic leading man whose death and resurrection enables us to know him and to seek to follow in Christ's footsteps. Third reason why we preach the gospel to Christians is because it fuels our awe of Jesus. Most importantly, gospel-centered preaching fuels our awe of Jesus. Our hearts swell with affection for Christ when we see him and his gospel as the center of history, as the ground and model of our sanctification, and as the source of our unity in the church. Mature believers need this desperately. Our flesh still at times craves idols. Even after decades of walking with God, our love for God can dwindle. The bonfire of devotion sometimes burns low. Even the most mature believer can grow numb at Jesus's worth and take the wonder out of our salvation that he freely gave to us. And so that's why we need, on a regular basis, we need exposure to the glory of God as revealed in the cross. I was moved this morning as I got up, got in my car, set to a praise and worship station right out of the bat as I'm pulling out of my driveway came this song, At the Cross. It's a, it's a popular modern worship version. At the cross I bow my knees where your blood was shed for me. There's no greater love than this. You overcame the grave. Glory fills the highest place. What can separate me now? You go before me. You shield my way. Your hand upholds me. And I know you love me. 
At the cross I bow my knees. Where your blood was shed for me, there's no greater love than this. I was brought to tears just this morning, singing that song out, driving here, and it's all about the gospel. And I would like to think of myself as somewhat of a mature believer. Certainly I'm growing and maturing every day as we all are, but it was the gospel truth that stirred my soul deep this very morning. So gospel-centered preaching does just that. If Christ and his saving work is like a perfect million-carat diamond with thousands of facets, then gospel-centered preaching aims to lift up and slowly turn that diamond before the congregation so everyone may be dazzled again and again by seeing Jesus' excellency from different angles. Paul was eager to preach the gospel in Rome to unbelievers and to believers. And we must be willing to do the same. Truth be known, you don't know who's who anymore. (laughs) You don't. You think they're a believer and they're not. So preach the gospel. That includes me as a preacher. That includes you as an ambassador. This is not preach the gospel sometimes and if necessary, use words. This is rather, again, what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. And you know what? Hudson Taylor understood this. In his commentary on Romans, Kent Hughes discusses a little bit more about Hudson Taylor and how Hudson Taylor realized that he was indebted to God, but his payment was to men. Someone once suggested that Hudson Taylor had given his life to the Orient because he loved the Chinese. So they were saying that in front of Hudson Taylor. That's why he went. He loved the Chinese. To this, Hudson Taylor shook his head and he answered thoughtfully, quote, not because I love the Chinese, but because I love God. That's why I went. Not like I somehow was drawn to a certain type of culture necessarily in and of itself, but I love God. And what a fresh reminder that ought to be our main motivation, that our debt is to God. But the way we discharge that debt is by taking the gospel to our neighbors and to our community and to our world. So let's do it. Let's take the the gospel to the rich and to the poor, to the educated and to the uneducated, to the Greek as well as to the barbarian. You're here today and you don't know this Christ. Before you leave today, we'll have a few people standing right over here and we would love to share with you of the glories of what it means to understand Christ's love for you and to turn and follow him. And as far as some take-home application here, we've got when it comes to reaping a harvest, that's your first blank on the take-home section, when it comes to reaping a harvest in your life, what does that look like? I wonder what kind of fruit you're bearing in your ministry and your effort. What does that look like for you? Are you being faithful you, you be faithful. Only God can bring the fruit. I get that. But are you being faithful, at least seeking to reap a harvest? Number two, are you a debtor? We're not saying you're a debtor to earn your way to heaven. But if you're a debtor, who are you in debt to? And how does that play out in your life? I think it's safe to say, again, while grace is free, in a sense, we're in debt to God, and we discharge that debt by carrying that truth to others. Last, do you preach the gospel more to believers or unbelievers? You know what the problem is? We think we heard the gospel too much. And we just, we're, we're, we're likely to only share it with unbelievers. And that means we might only share it a couple times a year. 
We ought to be bringing the gospel to bear in our lives, the lives of our family, every day. Paul longed to get to Rome to preach the gospel to them. The Great Commission, it's not an option, it's a command. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be richly encouraged from Paul's letter to Rome. And I pray for us as we look at this, think about it, internalize truths that were heard this morning from this text and some of the other passages that you would stir us up and that we would be changed from the inside out to see the beauty of the gospel freely offered to us that we would freely give that message to others as we have opportunity even this week Give us courage and boldness. Help us to lean upon your spirit's power and to be faithful to proclaim the sword of the spirit, the word of God, that the word of Christ would bring about fruit for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.